Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. Put down your pens and pick up your protractors. This month we're delving into the world of maths. We'll explore the life of a Fields Medal award-winning mathematician. We'll look at the maths of everyday life and we'll ask celebrated novelist Tom McCarthy about the relationship of pattern and structure in fiction. The French mathematician Cédric Villani is the author of Birth of a Theorem, an account of the intellectual quest which won him a Fields Medal, one of the highest honours in mathematics. Blending science with history, biography with myth, the book takes us on a wonderful journey of passion and imagination into the beautiful and mysterious world of mathematics. Now, you may well have heard Cédric on all sorts of radio programmes and going about the place. You've had a whirlwind tour, haven't you, Cédric? But you You've come into the podcast studio today to try to explain this extraordinary book to me. Now, first of all, I see a picture on the back of you jumping. You are jumping for joy at the excitement of maths. It's extremely athletic pose. And I think, OK, this is going to be fun. I look inside and I see the most terrifying equations that I have no idea how I will understand. Just tell me a bit about what this book is. Yes, uh, Alex, you're right to point out that the book looks terrifying in some respects. But, you know, it's like in therapy when you have somebody with a certain phobia. You may sometimes, it's by showing the object of the phobia that you can cure it in some respect. Here, just kidding. The truth is the book is taking you to what it is to be in the head of a mathematician working on solving the mystery. You have a problem to solve. In the end, it will turn out to be a beautifully formed theorem, a published paper that other people will use and so on. But before that, it is in a terrible state. It is chaotic. It is in your head. It is in your conversation with your collaborator. And you are erring on the way. It's full of mistake. It's full of unknown. What will it happen? And uh, in this book, there is all kind of technical jargon, mysterious equations, and so on, but you don't have to understand any one of them, not even the slightest scientific concept. It's not a book about math, it's a book about creation. And what you would see is the result of this creative process, what we have to produce as mathematicians, a theorem for other specialists to understand and use. And you don't care if you understand or not what the theorem is about. What is important in the book is the events the passion, the excitement, sometimes the desperation, the difficulties. It's like an adventure novel. It's like, really, one of the oldest stories in the world, isn't it? It's a quest story. You have to find something. Now, just tell us a little bit about what that obsession was. What is the theorem that you decided that you wanted to solve or yes. propose? And by the way, that's the first question one has to ask. What is it that I will wish to prove? What is it that I want to get? And it comes out in chapter one by accident that my collaborator and I decide in the heat of some conversation to go on in a path which was not quite the one we wanted to explore at first. But then this extra path turned out to be much more interesting and rich than what we thought. And uh, this has to do with uh, the world of plasma physics. Now you may say, Alex, plasma, here's a big word already. Plasma is simple. Just imagine a gas in which you have made conditions so horrible for the gas that the electrons are naturally ripped 
off from the atoms. So electrons are these tiny, tiny particles with a negative charge. They will go around wandering, not being attached to a particular atom, and you have all this cloud of electrons repelling each other, because as we learn in school, minus charge and minus charge repel each other. And for people working on these plasmas, for instance, people working on trying to produce big plants of uh, fusion, nuclear fusion energy, they have to understand the rules, the laws that govern this plasma, this cloud of electrons. And there's a certain mathematical equation allowing to predict the movements and the evolution of this plasma. And uh, one of the predictions of the theory, a surprising prediction, which goes back like 80 years ago or 70 years ago, is that uh, this plasma will enjoy stability properties. If you disturb it, for instance, putting an electric field on top of it, and then see what happens, spontaneously, the disturbance will be damped. It will be erased little by little, as if there was some kind of friction taking out all the energy which you put. But you look at the equations, you see no friction. You see nothing that resembles these usual stability processes. This paradoxical phenomenon is called the Landau damping, named after Lev Landau, a legendary mathematician and physicist from the Soviet era. And it's one important thing in plasma physics to understand it. Now you may understand it as a physicist, as an engineer, as a numerical analyst working on computers to reproduce the behavior, or as a mathematician asking the question, why? Why does it work? What is the deep reason for this? And that's what we did with my collaborator Clément Mou. Analyze it mathematically for the nonlinear equation governing the plasma and proving that this effect does occur. Proving it in the world of mathematics, in the world of logical reasoning and arguments. So what you were doing was witnessing a phenomenon and coming up with the maths that would sort of explain it, would, would, would chart it. Explain it, yes, that's the work you were. That's the question which obsesses the mathematicians. Why? Just tell me a little bit about the journey, about the ups and downs. I mean, it was dramatic, right? It was You did not sit down, work for a couple of years, come up with a theorem. It was nothing like that at all. It was nothing like that. Well, every uh, theorem is a bit of a drama in itself, behind the scene. But this was, was particularly dramatic. By the obsession, which both of us get into, by the intensity of the work, by the length. In the end, it was a paper of maybe 180 pages, all devoted to proving just one theorem. You may remember from school, maybe, the time in which you had a proof of maybe 10 lines solving a theorem about lines crossing each other and some triangle or whatever. Mm. Now it's the same thing except the reasoning is about complicated plasma physics and uh, it's uh, more than 100 pages long of reasoning and arguments. And uh, also the proof um, made us aware of a whole world of mathematics and physics together that we had no idea of. So the key ideas, we had no idea what they would be when we embarked on the journey. And uh, several times we made these dramatic mistakes. At some point, I even believe I have the result and announce it publicly. While in fact, we had less than half of the ingredients necessary for the solution of the problem. And comes this moment, which is almost terror, in which I realize I made a fool of myself and I have to correct this. And it's a question of honor. And there are in this tale um, 
through this one adventure about all the situations the scientists will encounter as seeing mathematics as a social activity. Sometimes it's work all alone at night, daylight. Sometimes it's discussion, the two of you exchange by email, face-to-face -face exchange. Sometimes it's conference, it's uh, traveling, it's meeting new people, it's discussion at lunchtime. It's every possible thing, including receiving the rejection letter of the journal who is not happy of your paper and you have to redo it and resubmit it and so on. So all these things uh, cover a span, a time span of about two years and a half in which many times we think that difficulties are so enormous. And for some completely irrational reason, I never lost faith in the fact that we would arrive to the end. You see, the tenacity is one of the main uh, things you have to do in research to be. It's really interesting, though, that you use that word irrational, that you had an irrational belief, a faith that you could you could do this, that there was something there to do. Um, of course, we just don't think of science and emotion as really able to work together, but you're kind of proving that they, that they can in a way. Is that right? They do, and this is a, a central uh, paradox, maybe, that many scientists are familiar with. What we are working on is rationality, for sure. But we are human beings with our dose of irrationality, as every other human being. And uh, we need to have this faith that something is there. Intuition of some result to be true, emotion, fear, joy, anxiety, and so on. All this is the daily bread of the scientist. Did this begin to happen to you, for you, as a child? Did, was math something that just obsessed you from the sort of get-go? Obsession was not the right word, but I uh, remember as a child being fascinated by, uh, it was adventures about some animated cartoon taking place in a magic mathematic land. I remember being quite uh, uh, fascinated by the possibility to fill magic square with numbers and seeing them add up like magically here and there. I uh, remember later as a teenager being so fascinated by the possibility to make this rigorous proof and uh, prove some tricky property about lines and triangles and parallelograms or whatever. Even if it's a simple problem, there's this joy of looking for the unknown. It's like solving a riddle, you know. And this theorem won you the Fields Medal, you and your collaborator, which is the highest honorary. I mean, it's the Nobel of the mathematics world, if we can call it that, um, which is a sort of extraordinary peak, obviously. But tell me, did that leave you thinking, I'm done now? Or are you now working to solve another theorem? And uh, that's another of these paradoxes that people may not realize, but that scientists are aware of. Winning a super big prize, like Nobel Prize or Fields Medal and so on, is something that will uh, diminish your capacity to do research because of all the focus and the attention you get and the solicitations. And of course, you need to be kind of in peaceful environment to do your research quietly. The amount of intensity and concentration that you need is not compatible with the fast rhythm of the public appearance and television and whatever. But it's a, a shifting from one side of the story to another side. 
because it's important also that there are people to tell these stories and to explain people what it is like research like and that there is research still going on and that mathematics is not a subject that has been dead for centuries and uh, to explain also that it's part of the uh, magical history of the progress of mankind blended with other sciences blended with culture and so on and so in the past few years has been a lot of my activity to tell these stories in many public lectures in schools in uh, theaters etc uh, writing books uh, preparing uh, lectures and so on this has quite some advantages also rewarding when you see people thanking you, wow, all this world that you presented us, we had no idea and it's so fascinating, this really warms you. Now, I, uh, I'm still also working in the back of my mind to some new problem and it's better that I don't attract attention on this problem. You know, when you're researching, you like to be a bit quiet about what you're doing or it will be a painful process, but you don't want it to be public. Cedric, thank you so much for taking time away from that to come and tell us about your book um, and about really the wider world of mathematics. That was absolutely fascinating and very best of luck with solving the next problem. Thank you. You're so welcome, Alex. And now from one mathematician to another, I'm joined by Rob Easterway, who has written several best-selling books that connect maths with everyday life, including the hugely popular Maths for Mums and Dads, and in fact, so popular we've now got more Maths for Mums and Dads. Hi, Rob. Hi. Um, there's a certain kind of trauma that's sort of welling up inside me. I'm just remembering this horrible moment when I think I was about seven or eight. You would know at what point um, school, small children get taught fractions, but I couldn't do them. Now, I'm sure there were loads of things I couldn't do when I was at school. Obviously, there would have been. But this is the one that has stuck in my memory as provoking the crisis in which I would not leave the dining room at school after lunch to go back to the fractions lesson. And I just sat sobbing, saying, I can't do fractions, I can't do fractions over and over again. I mean, you might say I was a bit of an oversensitive child, <laughs> but is this the kind of thing that you are trying to tackle, this kind of problem? Well, I am, and, and that's not an uncommon phenomenon. And I think it's not helped by the fact that if you go back a generation, there was an awful lot more of this kind of suffering because there was uh, very little uh, inclination of teachers to sympathise with children who didn't get it. If you got mm. it wrong, you were punished, you were humiliated and so on. And uh, the world has thankfully moved on from that. But it's still, it's very difficult when you meet those those points where you see, I suddenly don't get it. Getting over that, that barrier is, is very tough. And it's helping people to not be afraid to try things out, not be afraid to, to make mistakes and to realise, look, we're, you know, we're all human. And it's about discovering uh, how these things work and how they connect with, so with other things. your way in through these books is via parents, is to say, OK, you as a parent needn't feel helpless when your child goes to school, comes back, says, I can't do this maths homework. Or indeed, you feel you can't do their maths or help them with their maths homework. You know, I discovered, you know, me being strong at maths when my eldest was about, uh, about seven, uh, I suddenly realised she was bringing home stuff I didn't recognise because it's all being done differently mm. these days. And I found that both annoying and a bit, you know, I, I don't know how to help her either. So I, I thought uh, parents really need help to understand the way their child thinks and to be able to, to do something that, 
that complements what goes on in school rather than try and say, well, this is my way, and they get frustrated when their child says, well, that's not the way I'm being taught and I don't understand it. So how do these books work? What, what, what will we find in them? What can parents find in them? A lot of it is about making maths a more playful subject. And, and I think one of the key things, especially in, in maths for mums and dads, is, is discovering some of the games and activities you can do together with your child. Uh, because in the end, what the, some of the best maths is found through play and discovery. And that might be anything as simple as, as you know, looking at, at clocks and looking at the angles between the hands-on clocks and stuff. In fact, there's a one little puzzle we set uh, in the book, which is how often during the day are the two hands of the clock overlapping each other because they do so at midnight uh, but then they do so just after one o'clock and then just after two o'clock how often does it happen and it's slightly surprising and that's the kind of thing it's hard to find the answer but you could discover it together without worrying whether you understand the maths or not. So of course what you're you're telling people, children and parents, is that maths surrounds you in everyday life. And I mean, one of the things that's often occurred to me is I grew up, you know, before widespread use of calculators or sort of calculators on phones before phones, obviously, uh, before computers. And so I always think, well, I'm, I'm terrible at maths, but actually my basic arithmetic's okay. I can sort of work out what something's going to cost, you know, a group of things is going to cost yes. or something, or a bill or something like that. Um, has, that has obviously changed enormously. So how do you tell people that maths is more than sort of just everyday numeracy, that it surrounds you all the time, that you do need to know, that it will benefit you to know? Well, yes, there are definitely two, you can, you can divide maths into two two parts. One is numeracy, those things you just need to survive in life. And there are a few things like percentages. They are everywhere. You can't really survive without understanding mm. percentages or if you if you don't understand them, you're going to get ripped off by people. Um, but then there's this, these other sides to math that uh, many adults feel they've never been exposed to, which is often described as, as the beauty of math, the mystery, the intrigue. Uh, things like, I mean, it, 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 often they're quite visual, but but ideas like prime numbers, numbers that are not in anybody else's times table, like the number seven, that's divisible by one and seven, but nothing else. Or you go bigger and 43, there's another one. So what is it about these numbers and how many of them are there? And it turns out there's an infinite number. Now, in everyday life, there is no real point to that. I mean, you could easily dismiss it. When am I going to need this? And yet there is something intriguing about discovering these mysteries and these patterns that are out there, which does appeal to basic human nature. And lots of people say, oh, you know what? I actually, I quite find that quite interesting, even though it doesn't necessarily relate to me going out shopping or anything else practical that I might need to do. Well, I suppose if you, for example, I'm thinking of when you understand that that strange problem that, that people sometimes talk about where you put a kind of grain of rice on a square of a chessboard yes. and then you put two on, then you keep doubling. Yes. And it is sort of unfathomable to yes. us uh, as a sort at a gut level what a huge number you will have if you yes. keep on doing that. But actually, it's just a very useful way to understand how things can suddenly mount up in general in life, how, you know, debt crises could mount up, how food scarcity problems could happen, for how, example. How diseases spread, mm. that same thing. Uh, in fact, I present that old 
puzzle with the greater price in a slightly different way in more maths for mums and dads, uh, where we talk about a teenager being offered, well, I could, I could give you a lump sum of 200 quid for, for you know, your 18th birthday in a few years' time, or we can do various other things. Or how about this? We'll give you, for a month, I'll, I'll give you a penny on the first day if you do some housework, and then 2p on the next day, 4p on the next day, and so on. Uh, and we'll just keep doubling. Which deal would you like? And they say, well, 200 quid sounds good. And then you say, okay, let's just see what you turn down. And you work it out. And after, oh. thir- after 31 days, it turns out to be several million pounds that you could have had. It's just completely counterintuitive and surprising. And it, teenagers love discovering that story because they're dying to go of and course they do. their parents <laughs> to, to offer them this deal. But So when there can be this sort of surprise, that, wow, it's amazing that numbers can do that and I can discover it for myself then that immediately draws you in, I think, to it as a subject. And one thing I wanted to ask you, and I know that you do an awful lot, including, you know, all sorts of events to help with the kind of popularisation, demystification Mm. of maths, is to what extent we're harmed by our sort of prejudices when we think of children and indeed ourselves. I probably think of myself like this. You're either a kind of English person, a words person, a books person, or you're a numbers person, a maths person, a sort of rational scientific person. Mm. And actually, I don't think you think they're really polar opposites, do you? I don't. I mean, I I only made that divide when I had to at Mm. age 16 to take my A-levels and I had to go on the science route. But I look at my 12-year-old daughter whose favourite things are art and reading books, which she does, you know, voraciously, and maths. Uh, and no one's told her, you're not supposed to like those two ends of the spectrum. And there are so many connections between, uh, well, between art and maths and, and mathematical patterns and, and so on. Those two subjects are very connected, but also um, uh, in, in, in reading stories and seeing patterns and deep meanings and, uh, and so on. There are plenty of... Uh, both mathematical stories out there, but also um, ways you can discover surprises and, and, and see lots of things that a book might reveal, a story might reveal, that you will also get out of going through the mathematical process. There are many different things too between between the two sides, but um, I love the idea of joining all subjects together. I don't see why people should get this label of being at worst, a mathematician or a non-mathematician, whatever a non-mathematician and is. Horribly limiting for them and for and for their lives. Absolutely. I don't think there is such a thing as a non-mathematician because we all think uh, in a mathematical way. We all notice patterns and we try and predict what's going to come next. From walking down the street, looking at house numbers to, to much more complicated things. Uh, and the secret, I think, is just to get people enthused enough to want to try it out without feeling that they're going to get in somehow, in some way, laughed at for not being able to get it first time or do it quickly. OK, you've made me feel much better about going back and solving my 40-year standing fractions problem. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for joining us today, Rob. Thank you. My final guest is Tom McCarthy, author of three internationally celebrated novels, Remainder, Men in Space and Sea, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. His new novel, Satin Island, tackles the problems of living and writing in the age of information overload. Welcome, Tom. Nice to be here. Now, that is a sort of summary. It's actually a little bit more complicated than that. Just tell us, just tell us about the shape of the book and the protagonist for a second. The protagonist is, he identifies himself only as you, the letter U. I kind of modelled the book on, on Robert Musil's The Man Without Qualities, which is this massive... Uh, Four-volume book, is that right? Oh, yeah, 2,000-page, huge. huge book about 
an epoch all coming together of different systems and art and politics and capitalism all kind of collide to produce modernity in the form of a kind of catastrophe. And I, and I wanted this book to be, um, well, I modelled it on that, but I wanted it to be a minimalist version of that. So instead of 2,000 pages, we've got 200. And instead of the hero's name being Ulrich, it's just you, the letter U. But it's it's a kind of similar setup. There are all these systems being mapped onto other systems. So the protagonist, uh, you, is, a, is an anthropologist by training, but he works like more than half of anthropology graduates now in the corporate world for a consultancy. Yes, he's not an anthropologist as we understand it in the tradition of, say, Levi-Strauss. Um, he is somebody who's had to come into the corporate world, which is sort of one of the themes of, of the book, isn't it? The corporatisation of Oh, totally, of the, the corporatisation of, of life. Yes, as you say, and of culture. But, I mean, I, it's kind of interesting because... This one character in the book argues, I think quite persuasively, that that businesses have replaced universities. In fact, many anthropologists make this point. Businesses have replaced universities or cutting edge uh, vanguard businesses, leading designers, consultancies, architecture firms. They've replaced universities and, and in fact, artist networks as the place where knowledge and innovation is is generated as as universities, especially in this country, have just kind of become businesses and not even very good ones mm. due to funding cuts and privatisation and so on. Businesses have become have become the, have assumed the mantle of, of the kind of cultural vanguard. And I think this is a, this is an interesting shift. It has all kinds of political and aesthetic kind of implications and it, and it can't be ignored. When we first meet you as the book opens, he's in Turin Airport, isn't he? Which made me sort of instantly think of J.G. Ballard and that kind of interspace kind of idea. The point that you're always in transit and you're always in a space where you are surrounded by other people but not really connected to them, trying to work out all the systems that are around you, what's going on. He's in Turin, uh, delayed. It's, it's the delay that's so vital. And, and so, like, like everyone in that situation, he just flips open his laptop, flips open his phone and just starts meandering sideways through the data sphere. And he's reading about Turin and the Shroud of Christ and, and this crown of thorns. And, and he's reading about that Turin is actually a hub airport and they have this page on their website explaining what a hub airport is and he links it to the crown, this kind of spinning. And then he's trying to Skype with his girlfriend and, and they get buffered because everyone is trying to Skype or, you know, on, on, on trying to connect. And so this, this circle of delay becomes another kind of crown of thorns. And, and the whole novel is about that, that space of kind of hiatus of, of buffering of waiting that kind of almost theological situation where you're 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 waiting for the for the data to come in so that you can move forward so it's a very anxious kind of temporality um yeah as you're describing it and 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 the reading experience you know is the same it is of course it's a novel of modernity it's filled with the things that are surrounding us every day the kind of patterns that that surround us and often bewilder us but i wondered if it was also a sort of more um atemporal more kind of universal look at our desperation to generate meaning out of systems the constant looking at systems to try and find stuff out completely i mean it's a yeah it's an it's a novel very clearly set now um 
with in the in the era of data saturation. But I mean, at the same time, I I, I don't believe that this all started in 1996 <laughs> <laughs> or with the internet. You know, Western literature more or less begins Aeschylus's Oresteia with an account of a signal crossing space. Right, the signal that announces Troy's downfall um, is announced, and then Clytemnestra comes on on into the play and for three pages she talks about how the, the network of relay posts that conveyed this this signal from Troy to Argos and I've looked into this these are these weren't just bonfires on hills these these were uh, machines with movable parts and encryption systems and so right from the off we're, we're in the grid we're in the regime of, of the signal and 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 um you know, then Cassandra comes along like some kind of William Burroughs. She hacks into all this information and speaks in fragments and cut-ups. And so there's nothing... I mean, in that sense, modernity begins in, in 458 BC. I mean, look at Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet, especially in the wake of, of Edward Snowden. I mean, Hamlet, when we read it now, it's so clearly about surveillance, state scanning of private correspondence, you know, spying and uh, and people setting down information in the tablets you know the tables that that form the kind of parameters of their of their souls of their identities so it's so i think this condition of of being within data is is uh there's nothing new about it but it, it has a new face i'm very interested in the way that you talk about the anthropologist the figure of the anthropologist as um, I don't know if the right word would be analogous to the novelist yeah. or, or, or in somehow <clears throat> occupying a similar but I suppose crucially different position. The anthropologist is, is a writer. I mean, the whole the classical model of anthropology is that, you know, you look at the tribe and then you go away and you write the book about them that sums them up. It's kind of and, and in you mentioned Levi Strauss. I mean, he's a huge presence in my book. He's paradoxically, he's a better writer than any of the proper writers of, of his age. He writes absolutely brilliantly. There's this tension within his work of kind of wanting to be a great novelist and this sadness, this melancholia that he's kind of somehow fallen, you know, that he's doing this other thing instead, anthropology. Which he sees as what, just belonging to the world of some kind of social science, I, I yeah. guess, something yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean, he's history. so steeped in, in literature. And at one point he decides he actually wants to become a great writer. He's stuck in a jungle and there's not going to be a boat out for another three months and he's smoked all his cigarettes and drunk all his wine and he's got all these notes with kind of proper scientific data on one side and he just flips the pages over and starts to write a classic play in the style of Racine on the other he says later I was losing it I was going mad and after six days he just gives up um but but I'm I'm very um I'm kind of I'm very fascinated with you know imagining that piece of paper on one side you've got science and on the other side, you've got epic art. And then in the middle, the middle interests me. If you could kind of magnify that, you'd have this pulpy no man's land of neither nor. And I think that would be the space of, of contemporary, that contemporary literature has to navigate. You are often spoken about as an avant-garde writer. Um, that, of course, is another kind of label. And I wondered if it was a label that meant anything to you, whether what you think of as avant-garde in literature, whether it has a, a sort of real meaning, as it were. I, I think it's it's an almost completely useless label. I mean, as Alan Rob Grier said 50 years ago, it's just generally used by um, conservative critics to sideline anything that isn't kind of conservative. You know? <laughs> I mean, Shakespeare is avant-garde, you know, so... So what is that? You know, and that's totally canonical. I mean, Joyce is avant-garde, sure, but that's totally canonical as well. Um, 
at the same time, you know, I'm kind of fascinated by a 20th century avant-garde tradition that runs through Mallarmé and John Cage and, you know, um, all these figures. And, 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 and there's, a, there's a kind of, there's an early 20th century moment at which the avant-garde really has a particular configuration of, you know, if you think of the surrealists or the futurists or the situationists, they have these almost Stalinist bureaucracies and committees and subcommittees and manifestos. And that's, that's a fascinating kind of moment, but it is 80 years old or 100 years old. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I like to reverse engineer these, these, these kind of lineages of, of, of writing and, and, and um, I think I think all all writing is is a kind of performing an archaeology of of other literature and and um, I'm as influenced by the 18th century novel or by you know by Stern or Richardson or Defoe as I am by by someone like Pynchon or you know so so I, I don't know how useful these labels are I mean maybe you know to differentiate what one is trying to do from from a kind of middle-brow conservatism maybe it is useful in that sense you're a lot of your 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 work and your influences i mean you've mentioned all sorts of writers from all sorts of places but there is a sort of um specifically kind of european cast i think to your to your your interests and your influences yes but you know i i really like uh, i like dickens i like uh, shakespeare obviously i mean i think there's a great english or anglo-irish Tradition, but then actually, I'd argue Shakespeare is completely European. <laughs> I mean, so, so, but yeah, sure. I think in the in the twentieth century, lots of the. I mean, Paris was the epicenter of of everything in in the arts. I mean, Ulysses is basically a French novel. Mm. You infuriate Irish people when you say that, but but Joyce is basically a, a French writer. <laughs> Can I ask you uh, what you're what you're up to at the minute now? This book is is finished. Have you got another project on the on the go? I have no idea what will be next. I'm going to put out a book of essays, and I'm going to maybe curate an exhibition with the Hayward. Um, but as to what the next novel will be, it's anyone's guess. If any of your listeners have a good idea, please send it <laughs> in on a standard dressed envelope. <laughs> Gratefully received. Thank you so. I mean, this is a terrific novel, so it's probably too too early to be thinking about the next one. But thank you so much for coming Thanks for to having join me. us. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Podcast, and thank you to all my guests this month: Cedric Villani, Rob Easterway, and Tom McCarthy. If you've missed any episodes of the Vintage Podcast or would like to listen again, you can find all our issues on our website www.vintage-books.co.uk. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. We'd love to know what you think, so if you have two minutes, please give us a rating or leave a comment. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>